Chapter 8 of The Conquest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry, Johnson City, Tennessee. The Conquest by Oscar Michaud. Far Down the Pacific. The Proposal. After the presidential election of that year, I went to South America with a special party, consisting mostly of New York capitalists and millionaires. We traveled through the southwest, crossing the Rio Grande at Eagle Pass, and on south by the way of Torian, Zacatecas, Aguas, Calientes, Guadalajara, Puebla, Tehuantepec, and to the southwest coast, sailing from Salina Cruz, down the Pacific to Valparaiso, Chile, going inland to Santiago, thence over the Transandian Railway, across the Andes, and onward to the western plateau of Argentina. Arriving at the new city of Mendoza, we visited the ruins of the ancient city of the same name. Here, in the early part of the fifteenth century, on a Sunday morning, when a large part of the people were at church, an earthquake shook the city, and when it passed it left bitter ruin in its wake, the only part that stood intact being one wall of the church. Of a population of 13,000, only 1,600 persons escaped alive. The city was rebuilt later, and at the time we were there it was a beautiful place of about 25,000 population. At this place, a report of bubonic plague in Brazil reached us. The party became frightened and beat it in post-haste back to Valparaiso, setting sail immediately for Salina Cruz, and spent the time that was scheduled for a tour of Argentina in snooping around the land of the Montezumas. This is the American center of Catholic churches the home of many gaudy Spanish women and begging peons, where the people, the laws, and the customs are two hundred years behind those of the United States. Still I thought Mexico very beautiful, as well as of historical interest. One day we journeyed far into the highlands, where lay the ancient Mexican city of Cuernavaca the one-time summer home of America's only emperor, Maximilian. From there we went to Puebla, where we saw the old cathedral, which was begun in 1518, and which was at the time was said to be the second largest in the world. We saw San Luis Potosí and Monterey, and returned by way of Laredo, Texas. I became well enough acquainted with the liberal millionaires, and so useful in serving their families, that I made five hundred and seventy-five dollars on the trip, besides bringing back so many gifts and courtesies of all kinds, that I had enough to divide up with a good many of my friends. Flushed with prosperity and success in my undertaking since leaving southern Illinois less than three years before, I went to Embrough to see my sister and see whether Miss Brooks had grown any. I was received as a personage of much importance among the colored people of the town, who were about the same kind that lived in M plus 
not very progressive, excepting with their tongues when it came to curiosity and gossip. I arrived in the evening too late to call on Miss Brooks, and having become quite anxious to see her again, the night dragged slowly away, and I thought the conventional afternoon would never come again. Her father, who was an important figure among the colored people, was a mail carrier and brought the mail to the house that morning where I stopped. He looked me over searchingly. I tried to appear unaffected by his scrutinizing glances. By and by, two o'clock finally arrived, and with my sister, I went to make my first call in three years. I had grown quite tall and rugged, and I was anxious to see how she looked. We were received by her mother, who said, Jessie saw you coming, and will be out shortly. After a while she entered, and how she had changed. She too had grown much taller, and was a little stooped in the shoulders. She was neatly dressed, and wore her hair done up in a small knot, in keeping with the style of that time. She came straight to me, extended her hand, and seemed delighted to see me after the years of separation. After a while her mother and my sister accommodatingly found an excuse to go uptown, and a few minutes later, with her on the city besides me, I was telling of my big plans and the air castles I was building on the great plains of the West. Finally, drawing her hand into mine and finding that she offered no resistance, I put my arm round her waist, drew her close, and I declared I loved her. Then I caught myself and dared not go farther with so serious a subject when I recalled the wild, rough, and lonely place out on the plains that I had selected as a home, and finally asked that we defer anything further until the claim on the little crow should develop into something more like an Illinois home. Oh, we won't know what will happen before that time, she spoke for the first time with a blush as I squeezed her hand. But nothing can happen, I defended, nonplussed. Can there? Well, no, she answered hesitatingly, leaning away. Then we will, won't we? I urged. Well, yes, she answered, looking down and appearing a trifle doubtful. I admired her the more. Love is something I long for more than anything else. But my ambition to overcome the vagaries of my race by accomplishing something worthy of note, hadn't given me much time to seek love. I went to my old occupation of the road for a while and spent most of the winter on a run to Florida, where the tipping was as good as it had been on the run from St. Louis to New York. However, a month before I quit, I was assigned a run to Boston. By this time I had seen nearly all important cities of the United States, and of them none interest me so much as Boston. Always what appeared odd to me, however, was the fact that the passenger yards were right at the door of the fashionable Back Bay District on Huntington Avenue, 
near the Hotel Nottingham, not three blocks from where the intersection of Huntington Avenue and Boylston Street form an acute angle in which stands the public library, and in the opposite angle stands Trinity Church, so thickly purpled with aristocracy and the memory big with the tradition of Philip Brooks, the last of that group of mighty American pulpit orators, of whom I had read so much. A little farther on stands the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The mornings I spent wandering around the city, visiting Faneuil Hall, the old state house, Boston Commons, Bunker Hill, and a thousand other reminders of the early heroism, rugged courage, and far-seeing greatness of Boston's early citizens. Afternoons generally found me on Tremont, or Washington Street, attending a matinee or hearing music. There once I heard Caruso, Melba, and two or three other grand opera stars in the popular Rigoletto Quartet, and another time I witnessed Siberia and the gorgeous and blood-curdling reproduction of the Kishnev massacre with two hundred people on the stage. On my last trip to Boston I saw Chauncey Olcott in Terence the Coachboy, a romance of old Ireland with a scene laid in Valley Bay which seemed to correspond to the back bay a few blocks away. Dear old Boston, when will I see you again, was my thought as the train pulled out through the most fashionable part of America, so stately and so grand. Even now I recall the last trip with a sigh. If the little crow with Orristown as its gateway was a land of hope through Massachusetts, Worcester, with the Polytechnic Institute arising in the background, Springfield and Smith School for Girls, Pittsfield, Rookfield, and on to Albany on the Hudson is a memory never to be forgotten, which evolved in my mind many long years afterward in my shack on the homestead. End of chapter 8